today, check. Today, I've got the opportunity to uh, introduce you to um, a good friend of mine. Uh, normally, uh, I'd be preaching, but I uh, decided to take the week off of preparation for a sermon this morning. And uh, the person that um, I get to introduce to you is a good friend. His name is Roger. Roger has led our grief share um, ministry when it comes to helping people work through um, grief and loss that they've experienced in their life. He also serves in Life for Kids. Um, and I believe you're in your 70s, right, Roger? Serves in life for kids at the age of 70s. Yeah, absolutely. And um, is also going to Boise Bible College, which I absolutely love that um, Roger chose later in life to go to um, Boise Bible College, invest in in the kingdom of God and his growth, and he is giving the word this morning. So we give a please warm welcome to Roger Bunsey this morning. Hey, brother. <laughs> well, something that Pastor Justin failed to tell you, Boise Bible College is actually his alma mater. And when I uh, finished my last semester there, I told Justin... I think I'm going to change my degree to include preaching. And in that moment, I think he saw a 71-year-old man that may not make it to graduation, and he figured he better get me up here sooner than later. <laughs> anyway, I'm grateful for the opportunity to share my love for, for God and the, uh, the Bible. And today, we're going to continue on in a series that we call Someone Else's Shoes. We're looking at secondary characters of the Bible, these are not the big ones that we normally hear about. Uh, Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Um, these are secondary characters, but they still had an effect on moving God's plan forward with the Israelites. So today we're going to talk about Boaz. And before we get to talking about Boaz, I wanted to remind you that this is in the time of the judges. And in the time of the judges... The Israelites were kind of caught up in this endless cycle. They would, they would be really close to God and serving God, and then all of a sudden, they would start moving towards worshiping the idols and the gods of the Canaanites, the Canaanites that they failed to get out of the territory when they took it over. And when this happened, God would let them uh, become under uh, oppression by foreigners around them. In this particular case today, we're talking about the the Moabites. But as I was preparing for this today, it really struck me about that cycle. And I remember when I read the Old Testament for the first time, I'm reading through that and I'm seeing this over and over and over again with the Israelites, the Jews, and I'm thinking, what is the problem with these guys, right? God is doing amazing things in their lives. He's doing miracles. They're building monuments to God. And then just like that, the switch flips, and they're now looking at Canaanite gods, um, pagan gods, pagan idols. The second time I decided to read the Old Testament, I'm preparing myself. I've already got it in, in my mind. Oh, this is going to be terrible. I've got I to gotta read this stuff about the Israelites again in that endless cycle. And God put it on my heart. This is Roger... You're no different from them. You do the exact same thing. Your gods are different. 
You put idols in your life. It might be money, it might be cars, it might be houses, clothes, whatever. And your mind gets so filled with the things of this world that you forget about me. And then you always come back around when, when these things aren't satisfying to you, you come back and you want, you want to get close to me again. And of course I'm going to draw you close. I love you. But the difference is, is you have the Holy Spirit. I have God with me all the time, and I still do that. You guys find yourself in that loop at all in, in your lives? And, and I think it's just the way that lives, lives go. The good thing is, I know it, it's happened in my life, that the good times, the closeness with God, get longer and longer. And that period of time that I worship my idols gets shorter and shorter, shorter. The time that it takes me to get back to my God and to surrender my will to him is shorter and shorter. So today we're going to talk about a man named Boaz. But to really to understand Boaz, we're going to go back about uh, three weeks ago, I guess it was. It was the first in the sermon series. We talked about a woman named Rahab. She was a Canaanite prostitute. And when the Israelites were getting ready to go into the promised land for the first time, they sent in a couple spies to scout out everything, to gather information, to see what they needed to do. And they came upon Rahab. Rahab gave them shelter in her home, protected her, them from a set of uh, guards that were coming looking for them, and uh, even gave them information on, on what they needed as they came in, right? Uh, but what was really profound in that moment was the fact that as a woman that was raised in a pagan ancestry, that she made the declaration that she believed that the God of the Israelites was the God of heaven, of earth, and everything below. So the Israelites, they prepared themselves. They're heading into the promised land. The first place they go is Jericho, where we know the story of Jericho. And uh, that's where they find Rahab there. They go through Jericho and they take Rahab and her family along with them and they're heading west in the promised land. And they split off and part of them go north to conquer the, the territories of the north and part of them go south to conquer the territories of the south. And when it's all done and everything settles, Joshua takes all of the land and he divides it up between the 12 tribes of Israel. And the most southern tribe is Judah. Judah is where we find Jerusalem and Bethlehem. It's where we find Rahab now. Rahab has found a Jewish man and marries, and together they have a son, and his name is Boaz. So we pick up our story then in the beginning of Ruth, in uh, verses 1 to 2, it reads, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. First of all, Ephratites, before the city was called Bethlehem, it was called Ephrata, and uh, that's where they're from, they're, they're Ephratites. So it, this must have been a really hard time for Elimelech and, and Naomi to make the decision to take their, their sons and go to Moab. And Moab is the very country 
that's been oppressing them for some time. And you got to figure, well, if they're oppressing them, they're taking all the stuff from Israel over to Moab. He probably figured they've got food for us over there. Uh, we'll find work and we'll, we'll have food. So we'll live in Moab. So they moved to Moab. And the first thing we hear is that Naomi's husband, Elimelech, he dies. And her two sons take Moabite uh, wives. And uh, Kilion takes a, the wife of a woman named Orpah. And Malon takes a wife by the name of Ruth. So they stay in the land for about 10 more years. And we hear that the two sons die. Now, we have no idea what happened or, or why they died. But now we find Naomi in a place where she has no husband, she has no sons, there's no one to provide for, and she has two daughters-in-law, and they absolutely adore her. And she doesn't know what to do. She, she realizes, I can't provide for myself, how am I gonna provide for them? But then she hears a piece of good news. And we read in, in verses six through seven, when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and sat out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. So it's apparent at this point, God has raised up a judge in, in Israel. And the, the judge... He brings the people together. They stop the oppression. And things start to turning around. They're coming back into the favor of God. And so this is a perfect time for Naomi to take her to head home. Now she starts out on the road to Bethlehem. And she stops. And she tells her two daughters-in-law, says, it would be better for you to go back to Moab. I have no more sons. There's no husbands for you. I don't know how I'm going to provide for myself, let alone to provide for the two of you. And this was really hard on the daughters-in-law because they, they loved her so much, and, and she continued to urge them, and finally Orpah decides she's going to go home. She's going back to the, to the Moabites. But Ruth, she just clings onto Naomi, and this is her response in verses 16 to 18, it says, But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or, or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, even if even death separates you and me. When Naomi, Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Now, you know, this has got to be really hard on, on Naomi. She's grieving. She's lost her two sons. She'd already lost her husband. Doesn't know what she's going home to. She does have a piece of land back in the Bethlehem area, uh, but she doesn't know what she's going to find there. Was there a house on it? What's the state of repair? So she's, she's heading back to Bethlehem with the daughter-in-law in, in tow. And it's about a 30-mile trek from Moab to Bethlehem. But Moab is on the other side of the Dead Sea, which is really more like a big lake. 
um, and back up in, uh, across the mountain. So the trek coming back home is through hills, down into the valley where the Jordan River is, and back up into the hills where Bethlehem is. Probably took them several days to get there. Certainly not a safe road for two women to be traveling on, on their own. But they get back to the vicinity of, of Bethlehem, and the people start to recognize Naomi, her friends, her family, and they're calling out, Naomi, Naomi, and she says to them, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because I have tasted the bitterness of life. Well, in Hebrew, we know that Naomi actually means pleasant, and Mara means bitter. So she's in a bitter place in her life. And then we read in the last, last verse there for, for chapter 1, verse 22. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. And we pick it up in chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 3. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man, standing, a, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now the first thing we, we should understand is the clan of Elimelech, that's Naomi's husband. So Boaz, Salmon, his father, and Rahab are all from the same clan, the same family as Elimelech and, and Naomi. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. So we find Naomi's now gleaning in the fields of, of Boaz, and along comes Boaz. And he's greeting his workers, and he's talking to his foreman. And he asks the foreman, who is that woman out in the field gleaning? And the foreman tells her, well, that's Ruth. That's the Moabite woman that came back with Naomi. So Boaz goes over to Ruth, and he, he tells her, don't go anywhere else. Stay in my fields. If you go anywhere else, you might, you might get harmed. Um, so stay here. Follow my girls. You know, if the men put out uh, jars of water to drink, feel free to drink that water. And this is, this is Ruth's response. Verses 10 to 12 reads, At this she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? And Boaz replies, I've been told all about you, what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with the people that you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. We can see very clearly right off the bat, Boaz is a, a man of great character. He's a man of God. So, Ruth continues to glean in the field that day. And at the end, she goes to the threshing floor and she starts threshing the barley that she, she's collected. And 
separating out the, the stems from the chaff so that only the, the nut the, remains, the barley itself. And when she's all done, we're told that she had gleaned an entire ephah of barley. Now, that was a, a common unit of measurement back then. For us in our time, that would mean it would be about six gallons or 30 pounds of barley. That girl worked. And after she finished, Boaz calls her over and invites her to sit and eat with him. And he gives her bread and he says, dip it in the, the wine vinegar. And he gives her roasted uh, grains to eat. Anything that he had to eat, she had to eat. And she ate to her full. And while they were there at the table, Boaz tells his men, you are not to harm this woman. And she's going to glean the fields along with the women. Whatever she picks up is hers. Don't bother her. And by the way, while you're working the fields, pull out extra stocks and throw them on the ground that she may pick those up as well. So Naomi goes home, or Ruth goes home to Naomi, and she tells Naomi um, all about her day, shows her all that she had brought home, brought home leftover food for Naomi to eat, brought home all that barley that she had gleaned, and uh, she told him about the man, the man named Boaz. Ruth's response, or Naomi's response to this is, is verse 20 to 23. It says, the Lord bless him. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, he has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added that, that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. And Ruth um, responds to this and she says, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him because in someone else's field you might be harmed. Ruth stayed close to the women, women of Boaz to glean from the barley and wheat harvest until they were finished and she lived with her mother-in-law. So she, she's working alongside the women in, in the harvesting, and she's been there a while. And Ruth has a thought. In the beginning of chapter 3, we, we read, One day Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you, where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes, then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know that you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. Now this might seem a little bit strange, but this isn't, this isn't meant to be seductive at all. This is actually a, a business transaction according to the redemption laws of, of the Israelites. So Ruth goes and does what, what her mother-in-law told her. She goes uh, down to the threshing floor. She, she watches Boaz. Boaz finishes eating and drinking, lays down, and he falls asleep. And she goes over and lifts the, 
the blanket off of his feet and lays down at the end of his feet. In the middle of the night, Boaz wakes up and feels something at his feet. And he says, who's there? And Ruth responds, it is I, Ruth, your servant. Put your garment over me, for you are my kinsman redeemer. And this is Boaz's response. Oh my goodness, I, I lost my page here. He says in verses 10 to 14, The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than, the, than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do all that you ask. All the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am your uh, kinsman or guardian redeemer of your family, there is another who is more closely related. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here till morning. So she lay at his feet till morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. Well, you got to know by now that Boaz has been watching Ruth, and he loves her character. And this is not really business for Boaz. He's in love with her. So Naomi goes home, or Ruth goes home to Naomi, and, and he tells Naomi everything that happened. And Naomi says, now just watch and wait, because this man will not stop until everything is taken care of today. And sure enough, Boaz immediately that morning gets up and he goes into town. He goes to the gates of Jerusalem, or to the, I'm sorry, the gates of Bethlehem. And the, the gates of Bethlehem, that's where all the marketplace is. It also acts like a city center or like a city hall. It's where they do all the transactions, all the business transactions. So Boaz, he goes and he finds the, the kinsman redeemer and he sets him down and he goes and gets 10 elders of the town and sits them down. And he tells them. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the place of land that belonged to our relative, Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if not, if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. And the response was, I will do it. I will redeem her. Then Boaz adds a little bit more. On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead on his property. At this, the kinsman redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. That was Boaz's plan from the very beginning when he got there. He wanted to redeem Ruth. He didn't even know what the price was going to be, but he didn't care. He loved her, and he wanted to redeem her. So Boaz marries, Boaz marries Ruth, 
and they have a son, and his name is Obed. And in the last few verses of, of Ruth chapter 4, we read, This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron the father of Ram. Ram the father of Aminadab. Aminadab the father of Nashon. Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon the father of Boaz. Boaz the father of Obed. Obed the father of Jesse. And Jesse the father of David. Rahab is the great-grandmother of King David. And Ruth is his grandmother. It's an amazing story. And it really talks to what God was planning all the time for redemption, for redemption for all of us. God is the great redeemer, and he wants to redeem everybody. And we can see in Ruth and Rahab, it doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what you've done in your life. God loves you, and he's already paid the price, a price that nobody else could pay when he sent Jesus to die on the cross for us. For us as Christians, we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We get baptized, and God seals us. He send us, sends us his Holy Spirit. And from that point on in our, our life, we start a new life, and we start a new process. It's called salvation. And in this time of salvation, it's our place to put on the character and the attributes of Jesus, of our God. The attributes, we call them the fruit of the Spirit. In, in my family, we had a man, my Uncle Fred, who was always the spiritual leader of the entire family. When I was young, my Uncle Fred would say to me, Roger, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. And when I came to a place in my life where I knew Jesus, and he could see that my life was being changed, my Uncle Fred said to me, Roger, don't go out to serve. Serve as you go out. And what he was telling me that day was that I needed to be prepared every day when I walked out the door. I needed to put some scripture in my, my life. I needed to read a devotional, whatever. Five minutes, 50 minutes, didn't matter, but I needed to walk out the door with my heart jump-started for Jesus. And in that walk, whatever interactions that I had that day, I needed to capture the thoughts in my mind and to know where I was in those interactions with other people. I needed to know what I was feeling. Was I angry? Had, had I taken offense? Was I about to say something rude or or sarcastic, something that I would later regret that I had done or said, because in that moment of capture, I had another chance. I could call on the Holy Spirit for peace. Put peace in my heart. Give me the strength of self-control. Give me the patience to listen to the person that I'm interacting with. And most of all, let me respond in the character of Jesus Christ with all his attributes, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. This is what each and every one of us are supposed to do each and every day. This is what we do individually. This is what we do when we come together 
as the body of Christ. This is what we do when we're in our small groups. We should be talking about our walk, our, our working out our salvation with the understanding that in grace, there is no judgment. And in grace, there is no failure. So as we do this together, what we find is somebody else will come, come along aside us and they will help us, they will guide us, they will encourage us. And it doesn't take long before we're doing the very same thing with other people in our life. This is discipleship. Disciples making disciples. And this is how we disciple our children to carry on the legacy of what we've seen here with Rahab and Boaz. And it's in this place where we have that new desire in our new life to love our God and, and to work through our salvation that God can and will use us to reach the world for Jesus one person at a time. Let's prepare for communion.